book of Daniel is split into two halves, two very distinct halves, okay? In chapters one through six, you have a bunch of different narratives, a bunch of different stories. Um, in fact, most of the stories are kind of self-containing units. They're like hero stories, is what we'd call them, okay? You could take them out, right? Just vacuum them out, and they would stand as they are. You don't need the other stories to understand them. Um, and they're about Daniel, who we'll get to know, and a group of his friends. Um, and, and they're kind of these stories about Daniel and how he lived a life in a foreign land as a faithful uh, Israelite, as a faithful person uh, who had been called by God. And then the second half of the book, chapter 7 through 12, takes a completely different change, okay? It takes a left turn on weird road, okay? And you get into these apocalyptic visions. Um, so think like end of the world, right? Eschatology, all these things blowing up, these weird numbers, all these weird signs. Um, and it, it gets weird really fast, all right? Um, and it gets into these, these visions. That will play a, an important part in the New Testament. Um, a couple of things from the, the second half of Daniel come up over and over and over again throughout the New Testament. Now, there are going to be two pitfalls we try to avoid as we read Daniel. Two kind of temptations for us to fall off into. The first I'll call the veggie tail temptation, okay? <laughs> I don't know if you're familiar with veggie tales. I actually had never watched them growing up. Um, but at some point, great Christian thinkers sat down and said, how can we communicate the stories of the Bible to our youth? And they answered, vegetables. <laughs> and so it's this little animated cartoon series where they, they reenact stories of the Bible with vegetables. Now here's the thing about vegetables. I had never watched them, but I kind of started watching a few of them as I kind of came into leadership and I realized everyone else had watched them their whole lives. They get stuck in your mind, all right? It's hard to get out of VeggieTale mode. And this is kind of a like cute moralizing story. Um, it's, I mean, it's, I think with anything, right? You watch the movie. When you go read the book, you see those characters in your mind. Um, so here's the temptation. Daniel in the lion's den, right? Has this real cute VeggieTale story to it, right? The actual text is this really subversive kind of revolutionary text. I mean, it's this really powerful prophetic text. And the temptation, as we read through stories like that, is to always go into this kind of moralizing VeggieTale mode, right? Like how cute bravery is and how cute courage is and those kind of things. And we're trying to avoid that and really dig out um, the, the cold, faithful living that's in the text. Now, the second temptation, equally dangerous, is I'll call the Bible code temptation, okay? And this is more for the apocalyptic vision second half. People have done weird things with these apocalyptic visions, okay? They kind of Bible code it, right? So this is talking about George Bush, and this is talking about <laughs> Stalin, right? And this is talking about this and this and this. And they come up with all these weird eschatological schemes, um, uh, kind of blueprints for the end of the world. Think Harold Camping not too long ago, right? A lot of his stuff came out of the book of Daniel, right? So there's some weird stuff for us to avoid when we go through those apocalyptic visions. But... You can't avoid them because there is, again, so much power, so much truth in the kind of message that I think Daniel is trying to get across to us, okay? Actually, I was researching, there were two Methodist ministers who thought Daniel foretold the rise of the United States. That was the whole point of the book of Daniel. 1776, they had, like, mapped it out. I was like, wow, probably wrong, okay? <laughs> we're not going to do that as we go through the uh, book of Daniel. I love me some America, okay? But I don't think... That was on Daniel's mind as he, uh, he wrote. So those are the two kind of temptations that we're going to uh, try to kind of stay away from as we walk through it, okay? Um, so don't get worried. Resident Aliens, okay, is not from the Visions, okay? That's not going to be a weird turn we take at the end of the series. They've been here all along, right? No? Um, we'll kind of get into what that stands for uh, as we title the series as we start here in the book of Daniel, all right? So lucky for us, Daniel 1, the first chapter, is an introduction to the whole book. 
kind of sets the scene, gets us ready for the stories that will come. So it will be a good way for us to kind of uh, get into the story and the, the life and the text of Daniel this morning, okay? So Daniel 1, we'll pick it up in verse 1. Daniel 1, chapter 1, verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Already, we've got big names, we've got cities we don't know, okay? Um, you've got two kings and two countries, okay? You've got Judah... Um, which is the, the southern kingdom, okay? So you have Israel breaks off into two kingdoms. Um, Israel remains as the northern kingdom. They're already wiped out by the time uh, we're here in history. Judah's the southern kingdom. They're the only people left, okay, for God's people. And then you have Babylon, okay? And Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, comes in and destroys Judah. Verse 2, And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. Now, if you've got a pen or a pencil, okay, you want to mark along with me, we're going to underline in verse 2 that, that phrase, the Lord gave, okay? The Lord gave. We're going to see that phrasing three times in Daniel chapter 1. It's going to have some importance for us. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, that's just another word for Babylon, to the house of his God, so to the, the Babylonian temple, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. So let's stop there and talk uh, for a second, okay? Here's the date, 605 B.C., okay? 605 BC, probably in the summer, you have these two nations. Babylon is this huge, sprawling nation, this wealthy, luxurious nation, the height of civilization back at the time. But, as is usually the case in history, with the height of wealth and luxury comes the dark underbelly of violence and destruction. Most of these civilizations throughout all of history have been sustained by war and brutality and violence. Think of the Roman Empire. The Babylonians were these fierce warriors, and they would go and they'd, they'd conquer lands, they'd expand their empire, and they came to Judah, the little land of Judah, to the little Israelites, this oppressed people group in the corner of the world, out of most people's radar, and they conquered them. They conquered them. 605 BC, Babylon takes over Judah. But in verse 2, this is going to be important, um, the scriptures say, while on a natural kind of historical level, this is just one nation taking over another nation, as would be expected. Babylon's this huge empire. But actually, God is at work here. Okay, so the curtain is opened up, and we see behind the scenes and see that the Lord is kind of having the sovereign plan working stuff out. Okay, uh, one author put it like this. Even when you're in the hands of Nebuchadnezzar, you're still in the hands of God. Right? God's sovereignty, the way he controls things. Is this, has this mysterious kind of interaction with human decisions. It's not a zero-sum game where if you did that, God didn't do it, right? The scriptures say, okay, you should see that a minute and understand God gave them up into his hands. And so what they would do, um, this would have been seen, so that would have been news to Nebuchadnezzar, okay? This real powerful king. It would have been a surprise to him to hear that the God of Israel actually allowed him to defeat his nation, right? It would have been seen as the God of Babylon defeating the God of Israel, which is why they take out all the treasures from the temple and go put it in their God's temple. This was a common practice of war, right? We defeated it. Our God protected us in battle. We defeated your God. Let's take your temple. Let's pillage it and come put it in our temple. Now, again, it's um, remarkably similar to a story you find in 1 Samuel, uh, chapters 4 and 5. I don't know if you remember this. One of my favorite stories in the Bible, um, but the Philistines are attacking the Israelites, and they conquer the Israelites, and they take the Ark of the Covenant and go put it in the temple of their god um, named Dagon, D-A-G-O-N. Um, 
And what happens is during the night, okay, so you've got the ark in the temple with, with Dagon, and, and during the night, um, they wake up the next morning, come in to do their kind of sacrifices and, and rituals of the temple, and the statue of Dagon has fallen over. And the ark is sitting there, and they're really confused. <laughs> I got to, I've always wondered what goes through their mind. Like, what in the world just happened here? This big, huge statue, right? It's not moving. And so they're like, well, who knows, right? Weird things happen. They pick it up. They set it back up, okay? They do their thing. They go back to sleep that, that night. They wake up the next morning, come into the temple. It's back on the ground, and the head's been chopped off. Okay, this, again, this huge kind of sprawling statue. So the picture is painted as the ark is kind of like beating up Dagon in the middle of the night, right? Like there's this epic battle going on, and these inanimate objects are, are kind of going at it. So again, they've conquered, but the scripture's saying already there's something else at work here. God's still sovereignly kind of in control. He's still moving through history. And we'll see this as we continue uh, reading uh, throughout the book of Daniel and, and here in chapter 1 as well. So verse 3. The king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, competent to stand in the king's palace. Right now all the males are running down the checklist, Okay. Not good looking, not smart. Okay, I'm out, all right? Um, but they're going for the, the best of the best, all right, here. Uh, the royal kind of family. So these are going to be young guys, under 20 for sure. Maybe be as low as 14 or 15. Um, they would have been trained already, educated in the, the royal palace of uh, Judah. So they are on a path, right, for leadership. They're on a path for political kind of international affair uh, country leadership. And they're going to take them out and, and bring them back to Babylon. Um, so we pick it back up. Competent to stay in the king's palace to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. Again, Chaldeans, another name for Babylon, okay, Babylonians. Um, they use a couple different names here. So don't get confused with that. So here's the plan, right? Go take the best of the best, the, the upcoming leadership of that nation, and let's come convert them to our way of life. A very politically astute move to do, right? It does a couple things. One, it makes sure that the people who would lead the rebellion, if this little country ever decided to rebel, aren't actually there. Right? I mean, the people who would organize them, they're actually gone. They're in a, another country. So there's going to be a few different exiles. Babylon will exile people from Israel to their nation. This is the very first one. They only take a small group of people, the royal family, the, the young princes they think will be useful. The other thing it does is, as Babylon grows as an empire, they have a hard time controlling everything that they own. And they have a hard time knowing everything about everything that they own. You need people who are familiar with the practices who know the people, who will be willing to work for you, be on your team. So you bring them and you Babylonize them, right? I mean, you make them Babylonians. You teach them the literature, the language. You convert them to your way of life, your philosophy, your way of seeing the world, those kind of things. I mean, imagine if you took a third world, a person from the third world, and brought them over into upper class America. And started giving them some of the privileges, the luxuries, right? You think they might be willing to compromise on a couple moral qualms they have? Yeah, I mean, Wow. What a way of life. These guys must be doing something right. Um, and we teach them English. We teach them uh, our favorite TV shows, right? We teach them our favorite books, our favorite stories. We show them how to celebrate the 4th of July, right? They're different people. They become Americans. So the Babylonians are going to convert these, these people into the Babylonian way of life. They're going to assimilate them uh, into, into their nation, okay? So the king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years. And at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Um, let's keep reading. Uh, among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. Here are our main characters, Daniel and his friends, okay? 
um, the three characters, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah. Now you read tells people are going, these are the characters. Those are the three names I'm familiar with, right? Well, what happens in verse 7, uh, they're going to give them new names, Babylonian names. Again, this wholesale kind of assimilation into another culture, another identity. Um, so Daniel's given a new name, Belteshazzar. Uh, Hananiah, he called Shadrach. Mishael, he called Meshach. Azariah, he called Abednego. Like, that sounds familiar, okay? Rakshak, Bini. Now nah, I'm already doing it, right? You've got to avoid the Veggie Tales, okay, version of this. What's interesting, as we keep reading through the book of Daniel... Daniel keeps his name, his Hebrew name, and the narrative. But we'll refer to these three guys from their Babylonian names. Okay, So that's why you know, you're familiar with Daniel, Meshach, uh, Shadrach, and Abednego. Um, but those three, that's not their, their Hebrew name. Uh, all of these, these guys, these four guys, their Hebrew name is a name about God. So Daniel, God is my judge. Um, their Babylonian names are a name about uh, a Babylonian God. Okay, so again, this is kind of this assimilation. You're giving them a new identity. Uh, you're giving them a new destiny, a new purpose. You're, again, trying to assimilate them. So new education, new names. Now, some have suggested that these four guys would have also become eunuchs um, when they took on this kind of new role in Babylon. Uh, if you're not familiar, you were a male, now you're not a male. Okay, um, it was common practice to serve in the palace back then. King don't want no competition. Okay, so he only usually trusts males who aren't going to go after his, his girls, right? And so, snip, snip, and now you're allowed to be here at the palace. So, um, ancient Jewish commentators on Daniel and then early Christian commentators um, are pretty unanimous in thinking that these guys would have become eunuchs um, and that it actually would have fulfilled a prophecy in Isaiah 39 that your kids will be deported into Babylon and become eunuchs and work in the palace. Um, there's no proof of that, right? It's not in the text. Um, more kind of modern commentators have kind of drawn back on that and gone, well, we don't know. Who knows, right? But it's possible that when these guys go to Babylon, they've been given a new education for three years, they've been given new names, and they've even had their gender erased, right? I mean, this huge kind of shift out of the world that they've known into another world, a world with competing religious claims, with competing moral claims. They're thrust into this foreign this foreign land, Babylon. Now, we might be wondering at this point what this has to do with us. I mean, at all, right? I mean, it's this faraway land. It's this, this strange Jewish group of people, right? We're Christians. What's that to do with us? Um, thrust away into the lands of Babylon. Well, I actually think that the book of Daniel is the text for you and I to learn how to live as Christians right now in the situation we're actually in right now. So this is your first fill in the blank, okay? I think, I believe that Christians need to recover the truth that we are alien people in the midst of a hostile world. Okay, so this is what was happening for Daniel and his three friends, all right? They were this alien group of people in a hostile world, in a culture, in an environment that did not agree with them, that was competing for their um, religious affection, was competing for their moral um, values. Um, there were temptations all the way around, and they, they were tasked with the, the, the almost impossible job of trying to stay faithful as God's people. When all around them were these temptations and pitfalls and, and, and luring and opportunities. And the book of Daniel, in a sense, is one big answer to this question. How do God's people stay faithful if everything around them is hostile to their faith, to their identity, to the God that they worship? And I think you and I aren't in that far removed of a situation. In fact, I think this might be the most appropriate way for us to understand who we are and how we should live. To understand ourselves as an alien group of people. So this is where resident aliens come from, right? We're like a colony. And we're surrounded by people who don't think like we think. 
and you don't act like we act. And we're surrounded by temptations in our job, in our workplaces, in the mall, on the TV, everywhere we go. We're surrounded by temptations to, to not be as Christian as we're called to be, to not act like Christians, not think like Christians, not talk like Christians, not dress like Christians, not relate to other people like Christians. In fact, the more I've thought about it, the more my situation as a Christian fits right into what these four young guys were going through. So um, in, the, in the scriptures, walk with me here, um, there are two kind of uh, paradigmatic cities, two kind of paradigmatic people groups, like these two types of people, two types of civilization. You have Israel, God's people, and you have Babylon. And Babylon is kind of emblematic of the fall, a civilization um, gone amok in a sin. Okay, And there are these kind of competing two cities. You can belong to one of two groups of people. And this goes all the way back to Genesis 11. So remember, Babylon comes from actually Babel, Tower of Babel. If you're familiar with your, your Bible, right? That's from Genesis 11. At the height of sin, as the Genesis text tells it, okay? You have the fall in Genesis 3. Sin builds itself up until Genesis 11. At Babel, they try to build this tower to kind of make a name for themselves. It God scatters them. And then calls Abraham, calls Israel, out of Babel. And from there on, you have the sense of there's Babel and there's Israel. God's people called out of the chaos and the sin of the fall, of the violence, misuse of wealth, misuse of relationships and power that's characteristic of, of civilization after the fall. And you have this kind of competing, competing kind of um, political entity, polis, city, group of people that you can belong to. Now, quick side note, if you like these kind of things, usually when we go through book studies, I try to do something fun with the titles of the sermons, okay? Kind of gives me something fun to do in the week. This might tell you a little bit about me. But in the past, we've done, I've done different like classic rock songs and tried to like find one for every little like thing. Or a Latin Greek phrase was for uh, the act series. This one's going to be, we're going to try classic novels, okay? Um, so, I'm telling you now so you can watch out and make fun of me when we stop in like week three, all right? Um, but today's A Tale of Two Cities, right, by Charles Dickens. Um, this is, right, you got Babylon and you got Israel. Um, and then what you find in the, the Old Testament is most of the story actually is about Israel and Babylon, right? Israel becomes their own nation state, but then they get exiled into Babylon. And the whole thing is how are they going to stay Israel when they're living in Babylon? When they're living in Babylon. Now, as the New Testament comes upon us, okay, um, what you see happen, and this is really important to, to make sense of kind of the whole story, um, is that Gentile people come into Israel. We call it the church. Now, the church in Israel are not two distinct people, okay? Um, if that's kind of the background you've been kind of raised up in, um, we might need to sit down and talk about that a little bit more, okay? Um, but I think to really understand the narrative, you've got to understand it's one group of people. Romans uh, 9 through 11 would say Gentiles are grafted into Israel, the church becomes Israel. They're one of the same people of God. There's only one people of God. Um, so, but now it's not a nation, right? Watch it. It's transnational. It, it transcends boundaries of na nationality, of ethnicity, of language, of race, those kind of things. Um, but there's still Babylon, right? There's still the fallen kind of civilization. And so even in the New Testament, there's this tradition of calling Christians exiles or calling Christians aliens, sojourners. Um, so in Philippians 3, Paul would say to his Christian community, you are citizens of heaven. He said, don't get confused, right? You might think you're citizens of Philippi, uh, of Rome, or wherever you are, but your actual citizenship, where you actually belong, is heaven. You're a colony. You're a commonwealth here on this earth. Jesus, actually, in the Sermon on the Mount, would say, you are the city of God, right? The city on the hill. You're shining 
out to the world around you, out to Babylon around you. Um, first Peter chapter two, would he say this, uh, verse 11, I urge you to the Christian community as sojourners and exiles in this world to stay pure, to stay faithful. James 1, 1, speaking to the Christian community, calls them exiles, to the Christians in the dispersion, scattered all over the world, surrounded by people who don't worship your God, who don't have your values, surrounded by temptations and pitfalls and traps. I think this is a good way to understand who we are, the world we live in, particularly right now. I don't think this is just a New Testament tradition. I don't think this is just an, an Old Testament tradition. So if you will engage with me, humor me, um, with a little bit of political global history for just a second, okay? We are at, in our time of the world, and particularly our place in America, the end, or at least the, in the middle of the end, of what we've called Christendom, Okay? If you're familiar with this idea, this might track a little bit better with you. Okay, Christendom is this word we use just to describe the alliance or the marriage of the church, Christians, with the state or with culture. So the basic idea is that Christians get to influence culture, right? Christians get to influence the government. They get to influence armies. They get to influence the law. They get to influence literature, media, those kind of things. The whole Christendom kind of project starts in the 300s when the emperor of Rome converts to Christianity. So before that, Christians were a small, persecuted minority group, right? Um, they were growing very quickly, but they were still a minority, off-the-radar, persecuted group. When Constantine converts, he makes everybody Christian, right? It's the, now the official, the official religion of the empire. So Christians go overnight almost from being persecuted, um, having very little stuff, very little place in society, to now being in the king's palace, having all kinds of wealth, having armies at their disposal, Right? Um, so some people say this is the best thing that happens to the world. Some people say this is the worst thing that happens to the world. A lot of people say when the church becomes friends with Caesar, they start to give up some of their morals so that they can be friends with Caesar, right? Jesus told us to love our enemies, but if we need to go kill people, we'll go kill people, right? We start to build kind of theories to exempt ourselves from certain Christian morals that had been pretty solid for the first few centuries of the church, okay? Um, but you have this kind of alliance formed. It holds strong through the Middle Ages, okay? The church, again, for the most part, is in control of most of the world. Um, um, maybe not a pure Christian church, right? But those who claim to be Christians are kind of in control. Now, what we've seen happen in the past uh, couple centuries is this start to collapse on us. You see it already happening in Western Europe, okay? This is the perfect kind of case example for this. Are you familiar, right? Europe is... For most purposes, kind of an atheistic place. Um, churches are more likely museums now. It's a tourist spot, right? It's a relic of an ancient kind of past where people actually believe those kind of things. Spirituality is not dead. That's a common misnomer, right? Lots of spirituality, all kinds of new spirituality coming up. Christianity, though, is moving out of the center of society. It's becoming less and less a, a major part of society. So two quick stories. Um, I was reading a book on Christendom, and the author related... Uh, just kind of anecdotes about what it looks like, right, to be in a society that's not Christendom. What does it look like to be in a society where Christianity is not in the center of society? And he says, well, we can kind of see from Western Europe, okay? So what it would look like, apparently uh, a, a Christian was telling the Christmas story to a group of London teenagers, okay? This is in London, some London boys. Now, again, we think of, because of Christendom, if you're born, you know the Christmas story, Right? Because Christianity is just the center of everything. I mean, even if you're not a Christian, you know about it. You're kind of immersed in that world and that language. Um, but these kids had never heard the Christmas story. 
Which again, to us, like, what in the world? That's a different world that you could grow up and be a teenager without knowing the Christmas story. Well, at the end of the story, the kids are intrigued and amused, and this, this boy raises his hand and goes, I have one question. Why would they name the baby a swear word? <laughs> Get it, right? I mean, he knew Jesus Christ from, like, he stubbed your toe. Ah, Jesus Christ. It's like, why would they name him that, right? It's just kind of weird. Um, there's another story from Oxford where, uh, again, churches are kind of, um, museum places during the week and there's this guy who worked at the church during the week with just this kind of community planning well he came up on a Sunday Sunday morning and saw some congregants leaving um, and approached the pastor he's like what's going on here the pastor's like well church is ending the people are leaving go back home he goes I didn't know this was open on Sundays <laughs> right I mean he was confused what's going on figured this was like everything else it was closed on the weekends so what are these people doing here they're singing songs they're going to an altar what's going on here right that's what kind of a, a Christian world looks like post-Christendom. Um, now, let me be very gentle. It's what's happening now to us. And this is why particularly you're seeing the political arena get a little bit more heated. I mean, I'm not very old. I'm assuming it's always kind of heated and nasty. But, but I think since maybe 2000, 2004 and on, you're seeing kind of the last vestiges, people holding on to trying to influence it. So on the Christian right and the Christian left, People are very upset because they're no longer able to legislate Christianity, to legislate those, those morals. Now, you have, I think, two different viewpoints. Some people think this is the end of the world. We've lost our grasp on society, and we need to double down and do everything we can to get it back, to win it back. Other people, and I kind of fall into this camp, think this is not the end of the world. This might be a good opportunity for the church to really think through what it means to be the church, how we're actually called to influence society how we're actually called to bear witness in the world in the world around us. Regardless of, of your opinions on it, I think what we're going to see more and more is Christianity move away from the center of our society. More and more, I think, we're on a course where when you look around you during the week, what you're going to see is not going to be Christian. I think we're already there. Some of this takes discernment, right? You have to train yourself. We're used to going to the mall and thinking, this is just the American dream, right? God bless the American dream. Well, we're slowly starting to find out, and people are starting to be more aware, that our American dream is happening at the same time that millions of people are starving to death. Maybe that's not the most Christian thing, is to go spin ourselves into debt at the mall, right? But some of that takes discernment, right? You have to kind of learn and start to re-see things. And now you see the mall in this kind of society of consumerism. Is, okay, maybe this is not the most Christian thing. And when you turn on the TV and when you hear the news and those kind of things, it kind of takes this kind of retraining. But this has huge implications for how we should live as Christians. And this is why I think we need to dive into Daniel and take a cue from him. Because he's experiencing what we are and are going to experience. How can we possibly be faithful to our God as God's people surrounded by a world that we can't trust? That we can't assume is acting and thinking and talking the way Christians should act and think and talk. Let's keep reading. Verse 8. Daniel resolved that he would defile, not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. This is kind of interesting. Um, he was okay with being renamed and okay with the education and maybe okay with his gender being erased, right? But he draws a line at food, okay? This kind of confuses some of us. There's this kind of ambiguous relationship in Daniel. Um, so Daniel's going to be a friend of Babylon. He's going to serve them. He doesn't wholesale reject Babylon, right? But he, we'll see, he remains faithful here. But he draws line at food. In the ancient world, this is a big deal. Your food identified you. Who you ate, what you ate, who it came from, what it was offered to, those kind of things. And he says, uh-uh. 
I will not cross this boundary. It will defile me. It will make me not uh, a member of the people of God. It'll, it'll um, fundamentally distort my identity as an Israelite. So uh, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. Here we go again. If you're going to underline verse 9, and God gave, here's our second time, God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and your drink, for why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Um, so he gets a little bit of a hearing with the, the chief of eunuchs, but he's like, look, if this goes south, okay, if I don't let you eat this, this food, you go on this vegetarian diet, and then you start being unhealthy, it's my head, right? So he's not totally sold. So Daniel actually goes underneath him. Usually you'd think you go over somebody. Daniel goes underneath him to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had signed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And he says, test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat, water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you. Deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this manner and tested them for ten days. At the end of the ten days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh, a.k.a. Um, hunky, right? I mean, they're muscular. They haven't lost anything, right? I can't. We'll move on. <laughs> Don't worry, we'll edit that out of the podcast. Uh, they're fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's fruit. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were given to drink uh, and gave them vegetables. So a couple things real fast here. Actually, there are some people who have produced a diet after this story. I don't know if you've heard of this, the Daniel fast or the Daniel diet. There's a couple of people in our congregation that have actually done it uh, for a certain time. It's basically like a vegan diet, right? So I'm not sure if God blessed them because this diet was like better for them, right? I think it might be worth our time to look into kind of a whole foods, more plant-based. I mean, parents at least, right? This is the ultimate vegetables text, okay? Uh, don't eat your vegetables. Would you want to be a sinner? Okay. Read Daniel. <laughs> eat your vegetables. Only vegetables from now on. Because we're going to be holy in this household. All right. We're changing things up. Okay. We're going to take back this household for Christ. Only vegetables. Um, but you've, you've got this. Okay. They go on this kind of vegan, vegetarian diet. Okay. And God seems to bless them. Okay. God gave them favor in their sight. And then they're able to be sustained through this. Um, so the number point two we, uh, point two we have here is, is that the primary task of Christians is to be faithful in a world of temptation, okay? In a world full of temptation, Daniel's able to discern the line that he won't cross, and he's faithful. He says, I'm not going to do this. And he actually risks a certain amount in his faithfulness to what he perceives as is, uh, integral, as is, is important to who he is as a person of God, as, as when he's been called to follow him. Now, I want you to notice this. Um, Christianity is, not a, is, a, it is a new and different way of living, okay? Watch Daniel here. Daniel's identity is formed by his actions, by what he will eat, what he won't eat. Daniel could have easily said, in my mind, I'll still be an Israelite. And I'll compromise on this action, right? Food is food. I'll eat the food, but still think in my heart, right, that I'm an Israelite. This won't, I won't allow this to affect me. I think sometimes we separate action from belief, and it has bad effects on us. Um, Jesus, when he came, in a sense, almost just started a social movement. He, the only thing he left was a people who acted a certain way. He started a people, a community. And the invitation going out was for you to be invited into that community, for that community to go out and to grow and to expand, to shine the light, the life they've been given. This is why in Acts, the Christians are called the way. I think we've kind of got off track by making it all about how we believe, what we believe. I think Christianity is primarily a new way of living. It's a new way of acting. It's a new way of being in the world. Um, There's a story told back from the uh, 60s 
of a Jewish community in Greenville. So again, I think the Jews, because of their history in exile, have already figured some of this stuff out before we have. Okay, um, Because they've had to figure out, how do we keep our identity when we're in exile? How do we function at the synagogue? How do we sing these songs? How do we retell these stories? How do we train our youths? And that's why, even throughout history, Jewish communities have had a very, have had a very distinctive kind of character to them. Right? It's very obvious they're not like everybody else. They're different. They're different people. And uh, it was overheard in a coffee shop, a pastor, a Jewish, a Jewish rabbi, um, talking to, to someone, and he's saying, um, overtelling a story he had with his kids, where his kids are going, why can't we do this, right? Why do we have to eat these foods? Why do we have to go here? Why can't we do anything on Saturday? It's when all my friends are playing around. And the, the Jewish rabbi had to tell his kid, because you're a Jew. You're a different person. And he said, you have a different set of values. You have a different story. You have a different God. It's okay for them to do that. It's not okay for you to do that. I think, again, if we really want to understand what it means to follow Christ, particularly in the world that we're in and going to be in, we need to adopt those lines. We need to be able to, I need to be able to look out at other 24-year-old men, look at what they're doing, how they're acting, how they're speaking, look at it and say, it might be okay for you to do that, but it's not okay for me to do that. Why? I have a different God. I have a different set of values. I have a different story. I worship the one who is crucified and risen again. I'm not sure that we should, and this is one of the failures I think of our kind of political activism in the church, I'm not sure we should get upset at people who don't act like Christians if they're not Christians, right? I haven't been convinced of that yet. In fact, I think if we do, we're proving, we're kind of underwriting our own faith. We're saying you, won't, you don't actually have to believe what we believe to act like we want you to act, Right? I happen to think the only way someone will live generously with their money the way Jesus called is if they actually believe Jesus died and rose again. And I think the only way someone's actually going to um, forgive other people and love their enemies is if they actually believe Jesus died and rose again, that they'll be resurrected, that even if their enemy kills them, it's, it's whatever. They'll be raised again. And in fact, if someone doesn't believe that, I don't expect them to act the way Christians are called to act. I don't think we should be faithful with resentment and anger I think there is a sense of, it's okay for you to do that, but it's not okay for me. I have a different story. I have a different set of values. I have a different God. Adopting the attitude of resident aliens, where we can look at other people, not get upset, not be offended all the time, not feel frustrated, but celebrate. Be happy in who God is, what he's done with us, the life that we've received. I mean, what would happen if the church was able to train its children? So I work at a, a Christian high school, okay? Um, I can tell you, in, in that world, they at least believe everyone around them, most of them, is Christian, okay? Again, I think maybe that's where some of us are, and I think we need to stop thinking that. The world around us is not Christian. That's Christian as we think it is. Um, but in the Bible, about a Christian school, I think a lot of them are most of the kids are Christian. So when I look around and see how people dress and talk and act, I'm seeing how Christians dress and talk and act. If I'm doing that, there's nothing kind of inherently out of sync with my life and my claim to be a Christian. Well, they're wrong, right? I mean, any kind of Christian adult can kind of look at them and go, that's not how Christians should dress. That's not how Christians should talk. And that's not how Christians should act with each other and those kind of things, right? Um, and I think, again, if the church wants to be successful, if we really want to make disciples, we need to start training our youth. Look around at the people around you. Don't act like them. It's okay for them to act like that. It's not okay for you. You have a different set of values. You have a different story. You have a different God that you worship. Be set apart. Come out from Babylon. 
and be Israel. Be the church. Be God's people, even in a hostile place. We're called to be faithful. It's a way of living. Then Christians are concerned with faithfulness, not effectiveness. This is a big point we'll see throughout the book of, of Daniel. So we're just going to hit on these next couple points. I'm just trying to set the scene today. Christians are concerned with faithfulness, not effectiveness. Uh, as we keep reading in verse 17, as for these four youths, God gave, here's our third occurrence, right? God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them, and among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king, they had a place in the palace. And in every manner of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. So that last verse 21, King Cyrus is the Persian king. Persians will conquer the Babylonians, and Cyrus will send everyone back home. So this is the, the story's way of saying Daniel outlasts the exile, right? His faithfulness allows him to see it kind of through. He's, he's still there when Cyrus is there. Right? He, get, he gets to go home with God's people. He gets to see the reward of his, his faithfulness. Um, but notice throughout the story, even here with the food, and we'll see this over and over again. We're just going to touch on it. We're going to come back to this theme over and over again. Um, Daniel is more concerned with being faithful than being effective. If his plan of not eating the food goes south, he's okay with that. And we'll see over and over again, they're okay with dying. He's not willing to compromise to be able to whisper in the king's ear. Does that make sense? He knows who he is. He knows the identity he's been called to. And he's not willing to give that up in order to make some perceived difference in the world. This is what God's sovereignty, these three occurrences of God gave, should teach us. Um, it should teach us that God's in control of history. And that's an important point. I don't think a lot of us have really grasped the inside of our core, okay? Watch this. In verse 2, God's in control of these military conquests. So most of the world thinks the armies and the weapons that are the biggest and baddest, they determine history. If you read the scriptures, the scriptures say, they don't. You don't have to stop being a Christian to get on the good side of the armies. It's more important for you to worship the God who controls those armies and still has the world in his hand than for you to compromise. It relativizes, it subverts, it undermines the authority of, of military, military conquest. We don't trust in chariots and horses, we trust in the name of the Lord. Then in verse 9, God gave Daniel favor and compassion to side the chief of the eunuchs. Political power, military power, political power. Being able to get in right with the right guys. This is God's gift. Not the gift of someone who's wise. Verse 17, God gave them learning and skill and all literature. Um, even the gift of being effective, of being wise. God's wisdom is, is greater than human wisdom. Um, so it's more important to be faithful than to be effective. If you really read the scriptures correctly, I think what you'll start to see is it's not kings, it's not queens, it's not militaries, it's not governments, it's not laws that move forward the story of history. It's the God of Israel who raised Jesus from the dead. Which means your primary task is not to worry about those people, but to worry about him. To be faithful to him. And it means you are actually more important on the stage of history than those people are. It's your job to be faithful, not effective. But as we'll see in Daniel, the two aren't always opposed. Daniel's a very effective guy. But he's not willing to compromise his faithfulness. Does that make sense? Okay, third point here. Um, the church needs to begin a renewed focus as important to God's plan in the world. 
Daniel's a dream interpreter like Joseph. He's going to, again, outlast the exile. We'll come back to this again and again and again. But if it is true that we're resident aliens in a hostile world, that means the church is so drastically important. Because we're going to need training. We're going to need the gift of discernment. We're going to need a detox from the world around us. I need to learn. I need to be discipled, right? That the world is not, is not perfect as I know it. That there are things that I've grown up with that were wrong. That I need to walk out of. I need to learn how to be Christian. How to worship God. How to be faithful to the calling that I've been given. That's going to involve a church. I'm also going to need help. I'm also going to need people who can stand with me as I face these temptations. I think that the church is the primary plan of God for the world. So if you're, if you're going to write something down, okay, here's, here's your last thing I'll give you. We'll, we'll wrap it up this morning. The church doesn't have a social strategy. The church is a social strategy. We're going to work that out through the rest of the series, okay? It's a phrase. Think on it. Kind of dive into it, okay? Here's the kind of basic meaning of it. I don't think the church has a, a, a plan for the world to fix things other than become the church, other than believe in the one who was crucified and, and rose again. We model, we witness the way of the kingdom. We say, look at our community, the city on the hill. Look at how we spend our money. I can't imagine that someone who doesn't know and love Jesus would spend their money that way, but you can watch us do it. And you're invited to become us, to worship the God that we worship, if you want to participate in that life. We might say that Daniel teaches us that our struggle is not to make culture Christian, but to assure us that a Christian can live in a hostile culture. Or that we maybe should be less culture makers and more church makers. I think the church has a more important role, particularly in a resident alien situation, than we've often allowed it in, uh, in, in our kind of context. And we'll work these issues kind of out as we go along, okay? So again, we'll pick up in Daniel 2 next week. Uh, the task this week, maybe read through Daniel as a whole, and then zero in on Daniel 2, and we'll pick the story up um, there next week, okay? Let's pray together.